Well, hopefully you, we think about the words we're singing and uh, basically what we just said to God is that we love him more than anything else. And hopefully that's true of us, amen, that we just didn't mouth those words, but we really asked ourselves, is that really true? Is there anything that I adore, love, prioritize more than Christ? It's a good challenge for our hearts this morning. Those hearts that are prone to wander, right, from the the God we love or say we love. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 9 and... You're probably familiar with what Peter said about Paul's writings. He said that Paul has written some things that are difficult to understand as one apostle to another, right? I guess he had the right to say that. Um, And uh, I think he may have had what Paul wrote here in Romans 9 in mind when he wrote that in 1 Peter, um, because Romans chapter 9 is one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible, not necessarily to understand, but in my opinion, to accept and believe. It's pretty straightforward. Paul's pretty blunt as he addresses this subject of election, but it's a hard pill to swallow for sinful human beings like us. And so we're going to dive back in this morning. Romans chapter 9, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 14 to 18, but let me begin reading in verse 6 so that we can see the flow here, because as I mentioned last week, um, the big picture here is verses 6 through 29, and we're taking all of this together um, as a discussion that Paul had on the subject of unconditional election. Romans chapter 9, verse 6 But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son." And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And now to our text for today. Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Father, I pray that as we 
work our way through these challenging verses, that you would remind us that you didn't include the doctrine of election in your word to confuse us, but to comfort us. Not to anger us, but to amaze us. And so, Lord, would that be our response today, that there would be hearts comforted, Lord, there would be minds amazed as we consider this great truth that exalts you and all of your attributes and gives you maximum glory for salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it should come as no surprise that if the doctrine of election has been and continues to be the most controversial subject in the church, that John Calvin was and continues to be the most controversial figure in church history. In his classic eight-volume History of the Christian Church, Philip Schaff, writing in the late 1800s, wrote the following in his section on the Swiss Reformation, and I quote, no name in church history has been so much loved and hated, admired and abhorred, praised and blamed, blessed and cursed as that of John Calvin, end quote. I don't know what your history is with John Calvin, your experiences with John Calvin, but election is typically pinned on John Calvin, as if he was the mastermind behind it, which is not entirely true. John Calvin was a French theologian, a pastor, a reformer who lived and ministered in Geneva, Switzerland during the Protestant Reformation. He was just one of a number of men that God raised up in the 1500s, 1600s to direct the church back to an accurate understanding of what the Bible teaches about salvation. He and the other Reformers did not cook up the concept of election, but they simply explained what had been covered up by years of ceremony and tradition by the Roman Catholic Church. And I think a brief excerpt from church history might be helpful at this point because to understand how and why the system of theology known as Calvinism came to bear his name and was formulated into five points, we need to understand the theological conflict which occurred in Holland at the beginning of the 17th century. In 1610, just one year after the death of a man named Jacob or Jacobus Arminius, uh, who was a Dutch seminary professor, five articles of faith based on his teachings were drawn up by his students or his followers. They were known as the Arminians, and they presented these five doctrines to the state of Holland in the form of, of, a, of what's called a, a remonstrance or a protest. And they insisted that the Belgic Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism, which were the official doctrinal positions um, that had been adopted by the churches of Holland as a result of the Reformation, they wanted them changed to conform to the doctrinal views of their professor uh, and mentor, Arminius. They objected to the doctrines of divine sovereignty and human 
inability or total depravity and uh, predestination or what we're calling unconditional election and particular redemption and irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints. And so in 1618, a group of clergy assembled in the city of Dort for the purpose of examining the doctrinal views of Arminius in light of Scripture. And the Synod of Dort, as it was later referred to, lasted for seven months and after all was said and done, they decided that Arminius's theology was unbiblical. And they unanimously rejected it as heresy. But they felt a mere rejection was not sufficient and that some kind of official response was, was needed. And so since Calvin, John Calvin was the one who had written most extensively and clearly on the subjects addressed in these five doctrinal categories that, that, that Arminius' uh, uh, students had presented, they simply took Calvin's teaching and organized it under the same five doctrinal categories, again, that were presented to them by Arminius' disciples. And that has lasted down through the ages to what we know today as the five points of Calvinism, often referred to as the tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, um, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Now, let me just read for you a summary of what the members of the Synod of Dort concluded. Salvation was viewed by the members of the Synod of Dort as a work of grace from beginning to end. In no sense did they believe that the sinner saved himself or contributed to his salvation. Adam's fall had completely ruined the race. All men were by nature spiritually dead and their wills were in bondage to sin and Satan. The ability to believe the gospel was itself a gift from God bestowed only upon those whom he had chosen to be the objects of his unmerited favor. It was not man, but God, who determined which sinners would be shown mercy and saved. This, in essence, is what the members of the Synod of Dort understood the Bible to teach. Now, if you are interested in studying a little bit more of church history, which, by the way, as believers uh, today, it's very important that we know our past. Uh, we, we need to understand the history of the church um, so we don't uh, fall into some of the same pitfalls and traps that they fell into along the way. And I want to commend to you a, a very excellent uh, video uh, presentation called Amazing Grace, the History and Theology of Calvinism. I know a number of you have worked through this, gone through this. Uh, this is uh, available in our lending library over in the Resource Center. Uh, we may have even some copies that you can purchase, but this is really the best thing I've ever seen uh, on a video in video form that just just goes through the history of uh, of, of the Reformation and, and where did uh, Calvinism come from and and what does it actually teach and is it biblical and that's really the most important question Amen is it biblical is it what, is it what the Bible teaches and so I encourage you to get that and, and and work your way through it now sadly and ironically the doctrinal views that were clearly rejected as heresy by the Senate of Dort are the doctrinal views embraced by the majority of churches and Christians today. Are you aware of that? 
that, that the, the views that were rejected as heresy back in the, the, the 15 and 1600s are, are the doctrinal views embraced by the majority of churches and Christians today. And that's why so many Christians are suspicious of John Calvin and, and Calvinism. And, and they protest whenever the doctrines of grace are mentioned in a sermon or come up in a Bible study. Now granted, Calvinists have given Calvinism a bad rap by being obnoxious about what they believe and what they insist everyone else should believe. I'm sure you've all met one of those rabid Calvinists, right, that was just chewing on you all the time about election and depravity and all this stuff. And, and, and unfortunately, they have a reputation of being aggressive and argumentative and can come across as prideful and critical and judgmental. And frankly, that's why I prefer not to be labeled a Calvinist, but a Biblicist. Since when all is said and done, I don't hold to the teachings of John Calvin, I hold to the teaching of Jesus Christ. Unless anyone think that in order to come to this church, you have to accept Calvin into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior, our church bases what we believe and teach on God's word rather than on some man's theological system, but at the same time, we think Calvin was very biblical. Spurgeon thought Calvin was very biblical, who, by the way, was a Baptist pastor, and uh, typically, Baptist churches tend to be a bastion of Arminianism, and their greatest preacher in their history, C.H. Spurgeon, was a Calvinist. And listen to what he said. I love this quote. He said, quote, there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach what is nowadays called Calvinism. And then listen to what he said here. Calvinism, Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. That's all we're saying. It's just the gospel. So that's what... I think that's what Paul or Spurgeon thought, and I, I think that's what Paul thought. Paul thought the same thing. And, that, and that's why when he wrote out a comprehensive explanation of the gospel for believers in Rome, he included the most in-depth instruction on election found anywhere in the Bible. Now, I gave you a definition of election last week, just uh, as a starting point, let me repeat that for you, especially for those that maybe are here for the first time today. Uh, this is how I think the Bible defines election. Before the creation of the world, God chose to rescue some out of the mass of depraved, damned humanity to enjoy eternal life in heaven while passing over the rest and allowing them to suffer the just consequences of their sins in eternal torment in hell. Now, if you want to actually write that down, uh, come see me afterwards and you can copy it off my notes, okay? But uh, that's, I think, a, a faithful definition of election. And so God's choice to save some individuals was uninfluenced and unprompted by anything in the individuals, but rested purely on God's free, sovereign grace. That's why we call it unconditional election which simply means that God did not select us to be saved based on who we are or what we do, but based entirely on his unearned and undeserved kindness and favor. Now, Paul knew 
that serious questions and objections would naturally come into people's minds and naturally come out of people's mouths in response to what he wrote here about election. And today we're going to look at the first of two major protests and how God, or excuse me, how Paul responded to these objections. The first objection, verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Now, let me remind you, Paul got into this subject to begin with to defend God's character against those who were wondering if God had been unfaithful to his word in light of the fact that the bulk of Jews had rejected Christ and were accursed by God. Notice verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. If most of God's chosen people who were the recipients of all of God's blessings and privileges and promises were accursed, as Paul said, he wishes that he could be accursed so that they could be saved. He wished he could be damned so that they could be spend eternity in heaven. If that's true, then it appears that God has failed to keep his word to the nation of Israel. And if that's true, then why would he, we, we think that he will keep his promises to us? And so in verses 6 through 29, this big chunk here that we're looking at, uh, Paul set out to vindicate the faithfulness or trustworthiness of God by looking at God's dealings with Israel in the past, starting here in chapter 9. He's going to get to the present and future in chapter 10 and 11, but here in the past, and pointing out that it wasn't God's intention to begin with to save every Jew, but instead he selected a small remnant based solely on his grace and mercy, and that's very clearly stated in chapter 11, verse 5. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So in verses 6 through 13... Last week, we were looking at these verses. Paul used two examples from Israel's history to show that a person's salvation is not determined by who they are or what they do, but on God's free, sovereign choice. So God's choice of Isaac and not Ishmael and Jacob and not Esau clearly proves that election is unconditional. Particularly that statement, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, which was a flip-flop of the normal order, just as is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I, he said you could actually say loved less, right? That God had a special electing love for Jacob that was greater than his general love for Esau and the rest of his creatures. Nevertheless, Paul knew when people read or heard, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, that that'd be a hard pill to swallow. And so he beats his imaginary opponent to the punch and he poses the question that he knows would invariably come to their mind or come out of their mouth. Verse 14, what shall we say then? 
There is no injustice with God, is there? By the way, this is not the first time Paul asked that question. The first time was in chapter 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking human terms. May it never be. Interesting, Paul was first accused of making God appear unjust for judging sinners. Now he's being accused of making God appear unjust for saving sinners. Paul can't win for trying here. And I think this is just proof of our sinful fickleness as finite creatures. If we don't have a say in the matter, we don't like when God judges or when he saves. We just don't like it because we don't have anything to do with it. And we have a tendency to resist God's ways and the bottom line is we have a hard time letting God be God. God doesn't have to answer to anyone. He doesn't have to include us in anything he decides or does. As God, God can do whatever he wants and we have no right to question him. Paul's going to get there in verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Now, that might seem harsh, but the consolation is that even though God can do whatever he wants as God, as God, he can only do what is right. He always does the right thing. He has never and could ever do anything wrong. He has never or could ever wrong you or wrong anyone else. Abraham was convinced of that way back in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, when the angels who had come to uh, announce the birth of Isaac to he and Sarah, before they left, they said, hey, uh, by the way, uh, God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their ungodliness, their immorality. And uh, I know that's where you know, your nephew Lot lives and just wanted you to be aware of that. And immediately, Abraham responds by saying this, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? In other words, Abraham says, hey, I know you're a fair God. You're a just God. And, and hey, if there's, if there's 50 people there, righteous people, will you, will, will you withhold your justice? And he's like, yeah, sure. How about 40? Yeah, sure. How about 30? Okay. How about 20? All right. How about 10? If there's just 10, and he's thinking Lot and his family, that's, I mean, at least they'll get out alive, right? He says, sure, I'll, I'll do that. Well, the whole point was Abraham was appealing to the judge of all the earth, absolutely convinced that he would only deal justly. He would only do what was right. But if what Paul said is true, that God sovereignly chooses some and passes over others, regardless of who they are or what they do, that seems arbitrary, that seems unfair. Unfair. 
And Paul responded emphatically in the strongest possible way in the Greek language to refute a statement. He says, may it never be. No way. Not on your life. Never in a million years. It's unthinkable that God would be unjust because it's impossible for God to be unjust. And so the very thought that we could suffer even the slightest injustice from God is blasphemous. Besides, this is the wrong question to ask because when it comes to salvation, we don't want justice, we want mercy. If God acted solely according to his justice, then no one would be saved because we all justly deserve to die and go to hell. So be careful when you demand justice from God because you might just get it. Thankfully, God chooses to have mercy on some of us, which means we don't get what we deserve. That's a simple definition of mercy, is not getting what we deserve. When our kids were little, I wanted to teach them this very precious truth. And so from time to time, they all had their turn one day when they were, had disobeyed and they deserved to get spanked. I sat them down and made sure they understand what they did and, and uh, was wrong and, and they could articulate that and they knew what they deserved, I deserve a spanking. And I said, well, today, I'm not gonna give you a spanking. I'm not gonna give you what you deserve. I'm gonna have mercy on you. And that got their attention. Like in this so far, this new, this new theological term, mercy, I like it. It's my new favorite word. And I would just say, hey, so let's pray and you be on your way. So I did that one day with our oldest son, Zach, and he was a little guy and, and uh, didn't think much of it afterwards. And then <laughs> I came home one day and, and uh, Kelly said, hey, you know, you never believe what happened today. Zach disobeyed and, and I took him up to the bedroom to get a spanking. And he looked at me and he said, mom, have mercy on me. And so we were happy that he had learned the lesson about mercy, right? And he was begging mama for mercy. And all of us should be begging God for mercy. We do not want justice. We want mercy. And so Paul goes on here in verses 15 through 18 with uh, two more examples from the Old Testament that demonstrate that God has the freedom to do whatever he wants but that he's bound by his character to only and always do what is right. Again, that's the point, I think, of this this text here, that, that God has the freedom to do whatever he wants, but that he's bound by his character to only and always do what is right. And as we'll see, Paul moved further ahead in Israel's history from Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau in the book of Genesis to Moses and Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. What's more, Paul moved deeper into the doctrine of election and rather than watering down God's sovereignty in salvation to make it more palatable, he restated it even more, I think what I would say, in even more cringeworthy terms which make it even sound more offensive and repulsive to hear and harder to swallow. So 
get ready. If you thought last week was hard to deal with, buckle up because this is even harder, I think. So the two examples, first of all, God's word to Israel's deliverer, Moses, verses 14 and 15, and then God's word to Israel's oppressor, Pharaoh, verses 16 and 18. Let's look first of all at God's word to Israel's deliverer, Moses, verse 14, or excuse me, verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on, I, on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is a direct quote from Genesis thirty-three nineteen, And if you're familiar with that part of the Old Testament, this was when uh, the nation of Israel was at, the, the Mount, uh, or at Mount Sinai receiving the law. And, and God said this to Moses when he was on Mount Sinai, right after Moses had asked God to show his glory to him, show me your glory, he said, in order to reassure him that he had not withdrawn his presence from the nation of Israel as a result of them worshiping the golden calf. And God basically said, you know what, I'm done with you guys. I'm going to wipe you all out. And uh, Moses said, whoa, whoa, time out. That's not going to look good. You just delivered these folks from Egypt. What are the Egyptians going to think? What's the rest of the world going to think? Not a good idea, God, as if he had that conversation with God, right? I'm just playing with that conversation. But God said, uh, and he said, hey, you know what? Blot me out instead. And God said, fine, I'll, I'll have mercy. Uh, I won't destroy them all. Uh, I'll just kill 3,000 of them. And so rather than wiping out the entire nation, which, had every, which he had every right to do, and what he initially wanted to do until Moses interceded on their behalf, God killed 3,000 of them and mercifully spared the rest. And those who were destroyed, those 3,000 that were destroyed, got exactly what they deserved. And those who lived didn't get what they deserved. God had mercy on them. Well, just like the Israelites, we all deserve to be destroyed in hell because of our sinful rebellion against God. But God chooses to have mercy on some of us. I shared the illustration last week of... Uh, a judge who chooses to release a handful of death row inmates. And by the way, we're all in death row. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, right? And God chooses to release some of us, to not give us what we deserve. And no one can say, well, that's just not right. That's just not fair. Well, guess what? He didn't have to save anybody. And notice what Paul says here in verse 16. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. His point is, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'm going to have compassion on whom I have compassion. And it doesn't depend on the man. No matter what they desire 
or no matter what their deeds are, salvation is not based on our desires or our deeds. It's not based on any decision we make or any action that we take. It's entirely apart from human effort. It's exclusively based on God's mercy. Titus 3, 5 Paul said, God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. 1 Peter 1.3, Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. You ready for this? You're not going to like this one. <laughs> we are not saved as a result of our will but as a result of God's will. And by the way, if you have a problem with that statement, you don't have a problem with me, you have a problem with Jesus. In John chapter one, this is what the apostle John recorded, John chapter one, verse 12, but as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Couldn't get much clearer than that. Although Paul tries, Ephesians chapter one, Ephesians chapter one, which is second only to Romans chapter nine when it comes to uh, some in-depth instruction on the doctrine of election. But in Ephesians chapter one, verse four, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we, the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Verse 11, also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. And then James 1.18, James 1.18, talking about every good and perfect thing comes from the Father. Verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. It was not the exercise of our will, it was the exercise of his will. So the natural question at this point is, so where does man's will fit then into the process of salvation? Surely it's got to have a, a place somewhere. Well, let me ask you a question. How does a baby's will fit into being born? Think about that for a second. A baby has nothing to do with being born. How, how many of you made a decision to be born? It was not our decision. It was our parents' decision. And in the same way that no child has ever been born by his own will or choice, no Christian has ever been born again by his own will or choice. Now, I know some of you are wrestling in your minds because one of the main reasons people have such a hard time with election is they think it denies or disregards man's free will. 
And we can't let that happen. Because we all know we've got free will. And most people want to defend their free will. But in this verse, Paul defended God's free will. It's not about your free will. It's not about my free will. It's about God's free will. That's why we're here, class. <laughs> it's about God, not about us. S. Lewis Johnson, who was a pastor for many years at Believer's Chapel up in Dallas, a professor at Dallas Seminary, a faithful, reformed theologian, said this, quote, if ever a text indicated the unscriptural nature of free will, this one does, referring to verse 16. The doctrine of free will, he said, that it is in the power of a man to turn to God by himself is contrary to the grace of God. Salvation becomes then the work of God and the work of man, and the purity of the grace of God is compromised. And then he said this, salvation is only of the Lord. And yet we do have to somehow reconcile in our minds God's free will and man's free will when it comes to the doctrine of election. And so listen carefully here and hopefully we can untangle some of this a little bit. First of all, I think we need to understand that while God is absolutely free to choose whoever he wants to be saved... We, on the other hand, are not absolutely free to choose whatever we want when it comes to salvation. What I mean by that is that we understand free will to mean that each of us has the ability to choose what we want to do. All of us are free to make choices every day according to our desires. So in a sense, we have free will. I had the ability to choose when I woke up this morning what I ate this morning or didn't eat this morning or what I wore today and what car I drove and where, where I sat or where you're sitting. You, you chose where you're sitting this morning. There's, there's lots of choices that we make every day that God gives us the freedom to make those choices. So it seems natural to assume then when it comes to God's offer of salvation that we all have the ability to choose either to accept it or reject it. But when it comes to spiritual choices, I'm not talking about choosing what cereal to eat this morning, okay? I'm talking about spiritual choices. The Bible clearly teaches that our will is enslaved to sin. And the best work on this ever written is by Martin Luther. It's called The Bondage of the Will. Great little read if you want to try to look that up. His point is simply this, if it were up to us, we would never choose to follow God because the natural desire of our heart is to flee from God. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Romans 3, 10, we already studied this. There's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. 
Romans 8, 7, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. The point of these verses is simply this, that sin has totally and completely not just corrupted our bodies, not just corrupted our minds, but corrupted our wills. That's what we mean by total depravity, total depravity, which also can be referred to as total inability. And so even though we're free to make choices, these choices are influenced or controlled or determined by who we are. I'm sure you've heard me use this illustration before, but if you have a horse and you let him out in his paddock and you put a pile of hay and a pile of steak out in that paddock, where is he going to go to eat? He's going to go to the hay. Why? Because that's what he wants. That horse is free to choose. You didn't coerce him in any way. You just put it out there. But he'll always choose the hay because he has an innate desire for hay because he's a horse. He's inclined to eat the hay because of his nature. Well, guess what? The will of every human being is inclined toward evil. Our will naturally rebels against God and we're by nature enemies of God and we're not complete, not only, not, not only are we completely unwilling, but we're also totally unable to surrender to him. Jesus said this about the religious leaders in John 5, 40. He said, you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And so all that to say, God has to make us willing. Did you hear that? God has to make us willing. And he does that by renewing our will through the process of regeneration. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, totally unable to respond, made us alive together with Christ. This is where we get the doctrine of regeneration, which is simply this. Regeneration is the sovereign act of God whereby he supernaturally releases our will from bondage to sin and changes our desires so that we willingly and spontaneously turn from our sin and trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior by our own free choice. Do you get that? Regeneration is the sovereign act of God whereby he supernaturally releases our will from bondage to sin, changes our desires so that we willingly and spontaneously turn from our sin and trust Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord by our own free choice. So God doesn't neglect our will or ignore our will in salvation. He graciously frees our will so we're able to freely choose to follow him. And this happens all instantaneously and almost simultaneously. And all I knew was I heard the gospel and man, uh, I heard the song. I, follow, I decided to follow Jesus and I got up out of my seat and I went down to Kikama to come out I followed Jesus. And, and man, that, that's what I wanted. I wanted to repent of my sin and I wanted to follow Jesus. Well, again, you're just looking at salvation from a human perspective and that's right. That's exactly what happened on a human level. But behind the scenes, Something supernatural was going on, right? And that was the work of regeneration in your heart, making you want to repent, making you want to follow Jesus. 
So from our perspective, man's perspective, all of God's whosoever will, whosoever will may come, invitations to salvation are valid. They're legit. And we can legitimately sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. You say, that sounds like heresy. I didn't decide to follow Jesus. Jesus chose me. God chose me to follow Jesus. That sounds more biblical, right? No, listen, you decided to follow Jesus. You made that decision. And the only reason why you made that decision is because God enabled you to be able to make that decision. Salvation from our perspective, salvation from God's perspective. So that was God's word to Israel's deliverer, Moses. Now, Quickly, look at God's word to Israel's oppressor, Pharaoh. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. This is a direct quote from Exodus 9, verse 16. This is what God said to Pharaoh at the midpoint of the 10 plagues, which he had unleashed on the land of Egypt. So halfway through, five plagues are over. He's got five more to go. God says, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Interesting, this is halfway through. Um, Again, he's got five more to go. God could have instantly destroyed Pharaoh the very first time he refused Moses' request to let his people go. He could lightning bolt, one plague, over, done. People are gone. But instead, God was patient with Pharaoh, kept him alive, even after multiple refusals to release the Israelites. Why? So he could put on display his power in the most dramatic way possible in delivering his people from bondage to Egypt. It's like, Pharaoh, I could, I, got, I could go all day, man. I got more of these things. You, you, want, you want more? I, I can keep doing this. And you, we can keep going if you want. See, as the supreme ruler of the entire world at the time, Pharaoh undoubtedly, he thought he was the man. That he was the master of his own destiny and had the power and authority to do whatever he wanted. And yet what God wanted him to know is, hey man, (laughs) hey pal, I brought you on to the stage of history for a reason. To serve my sovereign purpose, which was to make my name known all over the world and cause all the other nations on the earth to stand in awe of me and to shake in their boots. And if you look ahead in in Exodus and Joshua and 1 Samuel, I mean, the word got out. And when the Israelites showed up on the border of some nation, they came out running and they were like, hey, whoa, whoa, time out. We've heard of you guys. (laughs) We've heard of your God. We we don't want anything to do with you guys. What, What do you need? What do you want? We'll do whatever. They were in awe of Israel's God. So 
So then, Paul concludes, verse 18, so then, God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Little summary statement here. Contrasting, comparing, contrasting Moses and Pharaoh, who, by the way, were both wicked sinners, murderers even, okay? Both, both killers. They were equally worthy of God's judgment and wrath, but God sovereignly chose to have mercy on Moses and to let Pharaoh experience the just consequences of his sin. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story of the Exodus enough to know why Paul used that word hardens. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he, he doesn't say he doesn't have mercy, he says, and he hardens whom he desires. You know the story well, right? In Exodus chapter four to 14, the word harden or hardening the heart is used many times. And sometimes it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and other times it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So who is responsible for hardening for, 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 for Pharaoh's hard heart? Was it God or was it Pharaoh? Yes. Again, here's the mystery of all of this. But we need to at least understand this, that God gave Pharaoh numerous opportunities to repent of his rebellion and disobedience against him. But despite the repeated warnings that, that God gave him through Moses, Pharaoh stubbornly refused to submit to God's rule over his life. And so as Paul said in Romans 1, God clearly revealed his invisible attributes and divine power through the 10 plagues so that Pharaoh was without what? Excuse. And because he rejected God's clear revelation of himself and refused to honor God and give God thanks, God judged him by giving him over to even greater and grosser sin. Romans 1, God gave them over to immorality. God gave them over to homosexuality. God gave them over to insanity. You are insane if you think you can beat God in a fight. And that was what was going down in Egypt. It was a fight against God versus Pharaoh. It was a fight between the true, to do sovereigns. Who was the real sovereign? And he just kept going. And he rushed his, he rushed his army headlong into the Red Sea. That dude was insane. He was crazy. Why? Because God had given him over to insanity. And by the way, that's why we must be very careful to heed the warnings throughout the scriptures to not harden our hearts when we hear the voice of God. You are hearing the voice of God this morning. Do not harden your heart. Paul knew that that would be the tendency of what he was saying here. 
Because rather than answering the question about God's justice, what Paul just got done saying seems to have aggravated things even more, made things even worse. And based on what he said next, he knew that's exactly what he had done. He just stirred the pot even more. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? How can, how can God blame anyone for their sinful rebellion against him if he has sovereignly determined that person's destiny from the beginning? But as we'll see next time, Pharaoh was not a robot. He wasn't a, a puppet. He wasn't a pawn. He was a lump of clay in the potter's hands. Big difference there, by the way. We're not robots. We're not puppets. We're not pawns. But we are lumps of clay in the potter's hands. And the bottom line is that God has a right to do whatever he chooses. To choose to show mercy by softening hard hearts, which all of us have by nature. And he also has the right to choose to show justice by hardening hard hearts even more than they already are. Folks, there's a tension here. <laughs> I mean, we all feel it, right? Between the justice of God and the mercy of God. God is just, which means he must punish sin. But at the same time, God is merciful, which means he desires to pardon sin. Thomas Boston, the, one of the old Puritan writers, pastors, preachers, imagined that in eternity past, the attributes of God had an argument about the fate of humanity. Justice demanded that sinners be punished while mercy begged for pardon. How could both of these divine attributes possibly be satisfied? Then the wisdom of God stepped forward and provided a solution. This apparent dilemma was wisely solved by the, what? The cross. Because at the cross, God provided a way for his justice to be served and his mercy to be displayed. All at the same time. The justice of God and the mercy of God embraced one another when Jesus hung on the cross. And Thomas Boston said, here was the most glorious display of wisdom. And that's why Paul says at the end of this section, chapter 11, verse 33, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. And while it's, uh, man, sometimes hard to grasp, um, 
Lord, we, we want to have humble, teachable hearts and minds. We don't want to harden our heart towards your word. We want to have soft, humble, teachable hearts. So, Lord, would you be merciful to every one of us in this room? And, Lord, keep our hearts soft towards this truth that it would comfort us, not confuse us. It would amaze us, not anger us. And ultimately, it would drive us to the cross where we see Christ hanging there and we see your justice and your mercy being magnified all at the same time in a mysterious way that we'll never fully understand but simply stand back and praise you for your wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.